0: Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more. More meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Thanks so much for joining today. I'm Danielle Delamar, and this is episode 51. Today I had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Margie Serrado. and we actually had a conversation in episode 29 as well. So go back to that if you're interested. Uh, today's conversation is really interesting because we really get into this talk about how we can feel really fragmented and really fractured and really cut off from ourselves. And this is an issue I felt really, really deeply as an academic. And in fact, I felt it so much that I would often bring to my classes a conversation about it. And I would usually start that conversation by reading a quote from The Heart of Higher Education by Parker Palmer and Arthur Zions. Um, Chapter three is called Beyond the Divided Academic Life. And I would always start by reading to my students just a little bit of this chapter. Um, I wouldn't read it uh, word for word, you know, paragraph to paragraph. I would skip around. And so I'm going to read to you what I would read to them and then I'll talk about its significance here in a minute. It starts with Arthur Zion's talking about his college experience, uh, I believe in the 60s, at the University of Michigan. This is what he writes. I was excited equally by the promise of my mathematics, physics, chemistry, and great books courses. They would surely bring me closer to my unarticulated hope for a life of significance and purpose. But already by my second year, I was floundering. And by my third year, I was silently despondent. What was all this about? What did thermodynamics or German have to offer to quell the unsettling disorientation and longing I felt? The meaning I sought for in education and in science particularly remained unmet. I looked around desperately but saw no place to land my lonely soul. Zions then goes on and talks about how he ended up quitting college for a while because he just, he couldn't find enough meaning and purpose in it. And jumping ahead, he says, The divided life of students was not a temporary phenomenon, characteristic of the 1960s and 70s. It's a perennial crisis common to all generations. As a college teacher for 30 years, I have seen the cynicism in many of our bright first year students who already have partly given up their youthful ideals and are settling for the goal of a six-figure starting salary. Under the surface, they still hope, but gradually they lose the vision of a life in which work and ideals are united, where purpose and values are part of the way they earn their daily bread. So I would always talk to my students about this, and I would talk to them about it, I know, because I myself felt super fragmented and had a really difficult time myself reconciling what I was doing on a daily basis and not feeling like it was really meaningful to me. And so we would always end up having these conversations about like, what is that thread that is tying your experiences together that's making the stuff that you're studying and even the stuff that you're doing outside of your college work right like your job or your role as a friend or a roommate or a family member it feels like we're living all these little individual lives, right? (laughs) Where we're, we're one person for this group of people and one person for that group of people and one person for that group of people. And then we, we struggle to figure out what, what is unifying all of that. And that's something I was absolutely struggling with when I was an academic. And that's why I always brought this conversation to my class. And uh, I guess that's one reason. Another reason is that they always really enjoyed this conversation. It it, it was certainly a truth um, that needed to be pointed to and given language around. Another book that I was obsessed with, and again, it was just a short little part of the book that I would read over and over and over and over again, is... Um, called Critical Communication Pedagogy by Deanna L. Fassett and John T. Warren. And this was sort of like my Bible as an academic. Um, I'd always come back to critical communication pedagogy. I um, describe myself as a critical communication pedagogue. And their book spoke to me because it was not willing to disregard our embodied experience. It would be willing to talk about emotions and the pain of living and working within the boundaries um, of, uh, of an institution of higher education. And this is what the authors write on page 31, searching, searching, searching for examples of interdisciplinary work work that draws together critical theory and instructional communication. I'm serving two masters, neither of whom I know very well. Each wants something from me. Each is dissatisfied. If I challenge racism or sexism or homophobia, I risk being too critical, too biased for the interpretive scholars. And if I fail to call out these injustices, then I'm not critical enough for critical scholars. On my left are researchers who remind me that it's important to remain objective, to pursue scientific inquiry in a dispassionate way, to break a complex phenomenon into its component parts so that we might understand precisely how it works. On my right are researchers who challenge me to take a stand, to see that I'm making a choice, to know that objectivity isn't enabling fiction but one that enables some and disables others they suggest that complexity is inevitable that rendering something simple might render it simply dead i'm caught between scholarship and commitment as though these must by necessity be two different goals i want to be a good researcher i want to be a good teacher but i feel cut off isolated incommunicado, spread thin by workload algorithms that treat my writing as a hobby, as something I can do in between my four classes and committee work and service to department and university. This book, like the one I just talked about, The Heart of Higher Education, spoke to me when I was an academic because it cut through all the crap that I was navigating, and it forced me to turn into this reality that I yearned for something more, that I yearned for more meaning and more purpose, and I yearned for more answers, and I I yearned to be more grounded and clear about what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it. It spoke truth. And in those moments that I really engaged this material I would feel grounded. I would feel clear. But then I would go about my life and get and feel fragmented again and get overwhelmed again and get anxious again and get stressed again and fall again and not know which way was up again. I spent most of my time just navigating all the external expectations and I had no sense of myself that could help me to navigate that stuff. I had no sense of self that could help me to say, you say no to that stuff over there, Danielle, and you say yes to that stuff over here. You do your scholarship in this way, not in that way. You teach your classes in this way, not in that way, right? I didn't have that clarity that helped me to make those kinds of decisions. So as a result, I was just being pushed around by my life. I was just being pushed around by my career. And this is what I really love about the conversation Margie and I had, right? It's about finding yourself so that you can then make the decisions you need to make and so that you can embrace the person you want to be and embrace the things that you care about and do the things that bring you joy. So here's the interview with Margie now. Thank you for joining today. I am talking to Dr. Margie Serrato, anthropologist, empowerment coach, and self-described multi-potentialite. Potentialite, is that how I pronounce yes. it?
1: Yes, mm-hmm. multi-potentialite.
0: <laughs> Yay.
1: Margie, how's it going? It's going great. It's, it's truly, um, It's. I'm just like, I feel that forward movement in my life with everything being aligned and free and flow. So I'm in a, I'm in a good place. I'm in a good place.
0: <laughs> I love it. I am in a good place too. And we were just talking about how, well, I was telling you how I was feeling almost <laughs> guilty to tell people I was, felt like I was in a good place because it is 2021. Yeah. Um, we're still in a pandemic and we have had some tough stuff go on already this year in our country. Um, and uh but yeah, we're in good places, so we should celebrate that. Absolutely. And did you? Yeah, did you at all um, feel the same way when I said, you know, I'm feeling like maybe uh, a little guilty for telling people
1: that I'm good? I did. Do you feel that I, way I, 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 that resonated with me because I, I've actually felt that way since the pandemic started. Um, it's really interesting because one of the things, you know, obviously this is a huge thing, right? Globally, it's, it's a complete shift in our existence, in our day-to-day life. Um, and what's interesting is that for me, I did not have the reaction that most other people around me had of like doom and what does this mean? And I actually had a very different response. Um, and the best way that I can describe this is. I felt like I was ready. I felt like I was ready for a pandemic. I felt like I was ready for any kind of challenge and shift that was coming. And it was more like, um, I felt this really intense sense of peace, Mm. which was very, very odd, um, you know, Mm. considering the situation. And it was especially, but it was very, very, um, it did feel like, you know, when people say, like, how are you doing? I'm like, I am actually quite great. And, and there, <laughs> there is this sense of like, what is wrong with you? Like, are, are you not being effective the same way that? And yeah, I, I mean, I had to shift to being a homeschooler for my kids. I, you know, by my opportunities for employment that I was seeking were not there anymore. My my growth in my, my business uh, stalled. So it's not like I didn't have the negative, you know, Uh, effects of of a global pandemic, uh, and isolation, and I'm very extroverted. So that definitely was something that was, you know, that that hit me. But I guess what it is, Danielle, is that I was prepared, because at this point in my life, I've overcome so many different challenges and traumas and really severe, uh, severe trials, that honestly, I, I just felt like, you know what, I, I can, I can survive it all. I, I'm good. And that, more than that, I am also here. I felt like there's this calling to help right now too, of like, mm. I am here to support others. Um, and yeah, so so it was, it definitely came with this, like, uh, how are people going to take this? And at the same time, realizing, you know what, it's okay for me to feel these feelings the same way that it's okay for them to feel the feelings that they're feeling. Oh,
0: I love it. Okay. So with all of that, I think that that sort of transition uh, transitions us into the conversation we came here to have mm-hmm. uh, you are my first repeat guest mm-hmm. and the reason that you are is and I'm you know this but I'm telling this to Absolutely, to listeners, listeners.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: so what happened is margie was on the podcast in the summer and i had promoted the episode on social media. And each time it was promoted on social media, uh, Margie had said something like, "Uh, you know, it was great to tell a a small piece of my story, or it was great to tell a sliver of my story. (laughs) And every time I saw that, because there were like, I think, three different platforms that we were promoting on every time I read that, like there was something in my heart that didn't like it like my chest kind of clamped up. And I was like, she's saying, this is great. And she was happy to tell her story. Like, why is this bugging me? And I even um, remember telling my husband about it. I was like, do you think I've done something where I've like, like, um, you know, Forced her into this box in the podcast, and she and she feels like she needs to be um, grateful, but she's not because she feels boxed in. <laughs> like I was just spinning a bit, and right. so this was months ago, and I just let it go finally. And then we <laughs> something happened on LinkedIn in December, I think, mm-hmm. and somebody had said something about podcasts. And you had mentioned, I was on Danielle Delamar's podcast, and it was so great to tell a sliver of my story. And I was like, oh
1: my God, there
0: it is again. <laughs> and and that's when I reached out to you. And I was like, Margie, how do you feel about the episode? Because I am feeling very concerned that I misrepresented you somehow. Um, and then you came back to me and you were like, oh, no, no, no. So Talk to us about what you said <laughs> okay. to me when I messaged you via LinkedIn.
1: <laughs> okay, first, like now hearing the whole like extended version of your side of the story, it's tracking <laughs> me up because I'm immediately I'm immediately reminded that sometimes we hold on to the things that are bothering us because we're afraid to ask and just come out mm. with it. And I I I wish you had told me like from the first time like that it bothered you. Like if something if something is tugging at you like that. To, to release it right to just like mm-hmm. like reach out to the person but we don't oftentimes we internalize that and then we think of like all the million ways in which we we are responsible we have done something that was not right and and truly um it had it's got nothing to do with us a lot of times right <laughs> but we don't know unless we ask um and if we never ask then we're always we're always with that turmoil you know, inside of us. Um, and actually Amen. and when you when you and for me, you know, part of it was it is a sliver of my story. This is, you know, um, it was a, a small part of what my academic story is and was. But the most important thing is, you know, we re- refers to kind of this place also where I am in my life, where i I realize more and more. That part of the reason why I felt boxed in in academia, not in your podcast, <laughs> was, <laughs> was that I had to choose just one part of me. Mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. to choose. And the part of me that I had to choose, I, I'm going to just put it in layman terms, was the smart girl part of me. Uh, uh. It was the part that I've, I was conditioned, and we as women are conditioned, to to be like, you're, you know, you you know, smart girls, you know, focus on their careers, on their education, on their families, on a myriad of things that are considered professional, respectable, uh, feminine, womanly, whatever the case may be. And for me, that was making a very, a very rigid choice about who I am, and performing in a way, a very small part of you know, not, not performing in terms of like it was false, but, but only like somehow I was only allowed to wear this one outfit of academia. When p- the other big part of me, which is not something that I really embraced or disclosed with, you know, to with too many people, was my artistic side, my talent. I have done acting and modeling and voice acting and pageants and bodybuilding um, on a stage, you know, for a very long time, but this is not a part that is um, that is respectable. This is not a part of my life. This is like a little girl's dream, right? This is like, you know, like superficial. These are the things that smart girls don't go after. They don't go after beauty. They don't go after, you know, their physical appearance. They don't, you know, only in as much as to make a good first impression for others, but not in as much as it relates to you feeling beautiful for you. So there's a really you know big part of like the beauty aspect that for me has been very challenging for a long time. Um, and not just the beauty in terms of like taking care of myself and feeling beautiful for me, but also a little bit of um, also being being physically attractive because again it's incompatible with being smart it's like you can't be the two and it's not just in academia it's in our society yeah and if you add the layer of success like you can't be you know physically attractive and smart and financially successful uh mind-blowing idea like there's something that you must be compromising about yourself you must be you know, uh, selling your soul to the devil. You know, if you if you go back witch hunting, you know, kind of <laughs> wording of these three things, uh, this trifecta of of what we perceive as being, uh, you know, kind of like the the ultimate, um, you know, kind of achievements in life, right? Uh, or the or the the whole mm. person of like what it means to be like, yeah, there there it is. You're you're completely top level. Um, it's all we always have to choose one of those we always have to choose okay one.
0: okay okay so I am really resonating with this because when I was an academic I hid the fact that I was an Oprah fan I hid the fact that you know I read Eckhart Tolle I hid the fact that I um listen to pop music i like i could not let anyone know because that is not the like you said the smart the, the smart girl thing to do um it is not sort of the outfit you should be wearing if you are yeah. uh, if you are an academic and so i want to know because i'm thinking about now my own experiences hiding that stuff mm-hmm. and actually i had somebody on the episode um Ashley Wellman, who you know, she on her episode on the on the podcast um, months ago, she had said she remembers like <laughs> a closet watching The Bachelor because <laughs> that was not the thing you were supposed to do as an academic. And so I want to talk more about this. Will you talk about how you hid this artistic side of yourself in academia and what did it feel like and what like do you have a particular moment or a story ah. um, and
1: what did it look like? you know I guess um, so so yeah, there was definitely um, I'll, I'll tell you one one poignant one because it relates to this more recent epiphany about why I felt integrated in this one work that I'm that I'm doing. so so let me let me backtrack that at the time when I was um, a grad student, Um, In 2008, uh, I was in a summer research program uh, for cultural anthropologists to do basically was we call it methods camp. So a National Science Foundation with uh, Dr. Russ Bernard. And um, we were in uh, the Duke University Marine Lab in North Carolina, a, a, a beautiful place. And there were, I would say like. 15 or 20 of us uh, students from different universities who were there to learn about quantitative and qualitative methodology and how to integrate these things in our work. Because a lot of times people, again, like this is always like choosing one or the other. Like you're either a qualitative uh, researcher or a quantitative researcher. And it's like, ah, you know, if we integrate these things, actually we, we make a whole picture. And that whole picture really totally relates to me as a person in general. Like to me, that was like, yes, this is... This is this is, you know, there's a there's a time for qualitative and a time for quantitative, and they can inform each other. You don't have to choose one or the other. And this is how I've always felt about everything. Um, and at the well, at the time when we were there, there was this um, there's this call for proposals for a Discovery Channel job, a, a job as a host, and it was to host a basically like archaeologically based uh, show for Discovery Channel. Well the university the marine lab was right next to um the maritime um, museum uh there and that is actually the site that has the queen and revenge artifacts and the queen Anne's revenge if you have ever heard of pirates and pirate blackbeard that's blackbeard's like ship okay and so i thought hey I could probably put something together if one of my, you know, one of my, my, my campers um, helps me to, you know, to film and, you know, I go learn something about these artifacts and like put something together as a demo. So I went and, you know, but it was very hush hush. I was like, listen, I I really want to do this, but, you know, um, help me, but like not tell everybody else because, you know, I know we're here to be like researchers and like students and scholars and all this stuff. And so, and, and I had two beautiful, you know, um, peers that, that went with me and helped me out. And, uh, and I still have the video, actually. I actually showed show this to someone not too long ago, sheepishly. Um, but it, it reminded me of when I was doing that demo, like I was learning all these things, like really like like learning the things and then regurgitating it for the, for the camera. Um, I did a great job. Danielle, I, mm-hmm. I, it's my, I have a facility for being in front of the camera, and just you know, ad-libbing and speaking, you know, speaking from my heart and speaking off the cuff of like the things that I've learned. Um, I, I just, ha- I, I'm just great at public speaking. It's, it doesn't challenge me, and, um, and and we we put some something together that was great. I was proud of it, but you know, kind of going back to to college station to Texas AM. Um, I wanted to do more of that work and I started doing a little bit more, but kind of like it was on the side. It was always on the side. It was like, this is what I do on the weekends when like, you know, mm. people are, you know, we don't have classes and and people don't know where I'm going and, you know, my roommates don't know or whatever. Um and and honestly like I, I it probably less for my roommates. They they would have supported me because they're my friends. I think it was more of the concern that people would, weren't going to think that I was serious about my education and wow. that I was not uh, you know, really focused because mm-hmm. I was doing this other stuff that, again, it's like, why would you be doing that? Now, here's the thing. Um, we, it, it, in reality, maybe I was completely wrong. Maybe I was putting that on myself, that people would perceive that. I know in my own family, my dad did perceive it that way, so I just extended that to well, if this is my dad and he thinks this isn't the smart girl thing to do, and he's concerned about me not being, you know, not going after what's really important in life, which is my education. Well, what are my faculty gonna, you know, gonna think, and what are you know, and what are my my peers gonna think? Um, so I was I was concerned that that would be the case, and the the interesting thing is I was successful at the at the talent side of myself too. I was doing a lot of voiceover work. Um, at Texas wow. A&M I was doing um, in fact a lot of um, acting for different jobs for uh, through the Texas A&M um, uh, university system too uh, but always on the side always as in like you know like I don't think anybody's going to be seeing these videos so I'm cool because this is for people like outside of the academic space um, mm-hmm. so I, I, was, I was successful at that and I, and I still am like I started doing this stuff again because it brings me joy. And the the but always, again, always separate. And the bodybuilding was another kind of like layer to that of, I've always been very, very focused on my physical fitness, very focused on being agile, like and having endurance and making the best use of my body. Um, and it in part, because I've always had this feeling, like I'm going to live to be a centenarian, so I want to get there be in, in the best possible condition that I can be. And how ca- how can I do that? By eating well, by taking care of my body, by taking care of my mind. Um, and then the other part too is I'm not going to lie; I know that part of that is having been uh, the victim of sexual assault and physical abuse when I was a child. It's been a way for me to reclaim my body
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so all of these things together like are very meaningful to me and yet that internal conversation you know that I was having of like what are people gonna think like in and, and and not necessarily without basis but at the previous job that I had in my postdoc there was some sense of you know like you, you're doing what? You're doing a bodybuilding competition, and you're gonna get on stage in a little sparkly bikini. And I'm like, I was like all for it because I, it was the old goal that I had, and I was proud of myself. But but there's this sense of like, what? Why? Why would you do that? Like, why would you do that to yourself? Or you know, why would you? You know, this isn't this isn't a respectable thing to do. um And I know. And the thing is now, I know that people think that I, I've always known. The difference now is. I get to choose me, Danielle. I get to choose who I am. I get to choose what's important to me. We that's that's our power. Choosing mm-hmm. ourselves over choosing to believe what everybody else has has to say or think about us. That's where our power is. We give that power away when we allow others to dictate who we are being, what we are doing. How we're supposed to think, how we're supposed to speak. We reclaim that power when we, when we, when we reclaim that.
0: And I would say that I reclaimed my power um, when I finally came out and asked you, mm-hmm. "Hey, is like, is there a, is there an issue here? Um, because I'm really seeing a, a, a similarity between that and what you're talking about here with." you know, hiding this piece of you through your academic journey um that didn't feel okay. Um it wasn't culturally or or I guess academically okay to to put forward. And um I think it I don't know, like it I guess it's similar for me. Like I, I didn't want to touch any weakness that I might find in myself or my podcast if if I asked you about it and you came out and said yeah, actually, I feel really boxed in. I felt really terrible about it. Like I was so afraid of not um, not pleasing you and and creating an episode that you would enjoy and that you would like and you would be proud of. And I was so afraid of of like just just turning into the reality that maybe it wasn't right and maybe there might be some imperfections to that. And all of this now is is making me think about what we were talking about just before the recording, which is positive intelligence, so mm-hmm. PQ. And one of the things that is talked about in PQ is um, the judge. Okay. We all have this judge within us, and that judge tells us No, no, you don't do it that way because, you know, people are going to think you're crazy. You are going to think you're, you know, not smart or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. People are going to think you're incompetent. Mm -hmm. So you're judging yourself, but you're also judging others. Um, And so I know you have a lot of um, uh, knowledge around positive intelligence. And so I want to ask you about that a little bit and how the judge kind of seeps in And makes it so we can't do the things that you are just, that, that we're talking about need to be done. Like, like stepping into your own empowerment, stepping into yourself, making decisions that feel good to you.
1: Yeah. So, um, so I'll follow that up by saying, yes, we all have an internal judge and and our judge is kind of divided into three things. It's, uh, we, it's a judge of, of ourselves. It's a judge of others and it's a judge of circumstances. And, that judge ultimately kind of is what oftentimes is the root of like a lot of our fears of our fears of not not being enough, of not being um, respected by others, of not being loved by others, of not being acknowledged by others. Um, and we really create so much stress for ourselves on the assumptions that we make of what other people feel, think about us. Um And, and we expend so much less time and energy on what's really important, which is what is really true about me. And that is our sage. We each have the same way that we each have a, a judge. We all have a sage. And it's kind of like taking that proverbial step back and thinking, who am I really? And what is important about me? What is important? to me about me and what are the things that I have learned to accept as true about myself that are not true or what are the things that I have neglected about myself because of what others think is right for me and so like getting back at at, you know trusting yourself at being like the root of what your sage, your wisdom is, is really important. Um, you know, I, as I was kind of getting in, out of like this transition out of academia and just really parting ways with it, um, part of that inner conflict for me was, uh, you know, that kind of like the, the judge nagging, nagging uh, it, it, at me of, you know, what are people going to think? And you know, we, we, a lot of postdocs really, and people who are still in academia, who just feel like that's not the right place for them, they really struggle with the sense of investment, like, like, aren't you quitting on yourself, on yourself, and look at all the money and the time that you've put into, you know, your education, and your, you know, your time as a faculty, or your tenure, or publications, or any of these things, and like, that becomes the thing that shackles us to Mm -hmm. staying. And, Mm -hmm. and, and there's, there's, you know, there's this, there's, it's almost like a greater commitment to academia than it is to yourself.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just had somebody on the podcast who talked about the fierce loyalty to academia and doing it at all costs. Yeah.
1: Doing it at all costs, including the cost of your mental health. The cost of your emotional health, your physical health, oftentimes too, because you know your mental and emotional health have physiological repercussions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so so when you know, if we if we let go of all the fears and the worst case scenarios, and just allow ourselves to really to focus on our own wisdom and trust ourselves that you know, if I leave academia. If I, do, if I never go back to academia, what's the worst that can happen? There's a fear that, well, maybe I'm not employable outside of academia. Or well, what can I do with my life outside of academia because I haven't had a need to think about it or I haven't, so I don't know what, what the possibilities or, or really you don't even think about the possibilities. You think about like all of the ways in which it's not going to work. The truth is, is that you know the ability to pivot and the ability to reframe and the ability to, um, reinvent yourself, um, is, is ultimately more, the more important, um, it's a more important, um, experience surely than, than the fear of letting go. Mm -hmm. And this is just for me as, um, in, in positive intelligence, you, you learn to dig into this deeply and by doing some inner work. And part of that inner work is uh, realizing that we often expend so much more time thinking about everybody else and what everybody else's perception is than we, than, than we do in focusing on what is it that I really want? What is it that makes me happy? Because we've associated that with selfishness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But what it is, is lack of self-compassion. And and also this looking outside for validation of who we are and of worth uh, versus practicing the very important skill of self-love and self-compassion and recognizing that you are worth love regardless of your mistakes, regardless of your successes, regardless of, you know, your family situation, your work situation, your financial situation, you are worthy of love. And we don't really spend a lot of time in that space.
0: Yes, yes. And and what I'm thinking about is this sage... Piece of ourselves, this sort of wisdom piece of ourselves. I know Stephen Hayes calls it the transcendent self, that mm-hmm. self that integrates everything. Um, I'm thinking about all the different roles we were we were talking about in our in our exchange, our message exchange earlier on LinkedIn, and uh, we were talking about you know you kind of feel like you're seven different people because you're trying to do seven different things and be seven different, um, you know, serve seven different roles. Like I'm a parent and Mm -hmm. I'm an, I don't know, an academic or as an academic, I remember thinking, uh, I teaching research and service, teaching research and service. Mm -hmm. And I had such a hard time integrating the three. They always felt so Um, distinct, and they made me feel so frenzied, and they made me feel so fragmented. And so I want to talk about how that sort of wise piece of yourself, that transcendent self, can start to integrate those pieces of you that feel so separate, and and it's so sort of stressful and Mm anxiety-provoking. So how do we start to do that?
1: Well, part of it is, um, you know, what, whatever situation you're you're in, um, and this this is as much with career as it is with relationships, because uh, I I know that that in a in a part of the parallels that I know that relate to academia is also thinking about marriage, of like and that same that same, um, wording of investment in in a marriage. Is really part of what also keeps us like locked in sometimes into relationships that may not be good for us, Um, and you know, and and so we, but we have this thing like the longer you're in a relationship, the harder it is to let go because you 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 get focused on this is all the time and the money and the you know the effort that has gone into growing this relationship and being a part of this relationship, and we do take on the identity of you know as a partner, a husband or wife, um, it, you know, as it, it, part of that. And so there's, there's definitely like, you know, part of the grieving process when you divorce is is that loss of that part of your identity. And it's the same thing with leaving academia. It's the grief process is grieving this side of you that you feel like you have to let go of, that you can no longer claim because you're not going to be in that same context, which is not true. You just reframe it somehow. Um, I guess what what it immediately like comes up for me is, you know, thinking about how we when we're are so narrowly focused on one sliver of our lives um, and one part of our identity, the one that's been acceptable to to perform. Um, it's so it's so easy to neglect how the other parts of us are possibly more informative of our sense of fulfillment and joy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and or uh, we just neglect seeing how they can form part of a ho- cohesive whole self that we can be in in all every ar- areas of our life. So I'll give you an example like uh, one of the many 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 titles that I, that I can add now. <laughs> to to my who am I and what I do um, is is film producer. I am not trained as a producer. I'm not I didn't go to film school. Um, I mean, it probably the closest it has been acting classes when you know, when I was younger. Um, And I had this great idea a couple of years ago, actually, as a result of of doing my first bodybuilding competition. And uh, I'm going to bring bodybuilding into this because this is you know, this is not necessarily a topic that academics talk about. Okay. And so I right. gonna, we're just going to, you know, go into this, um, yeah. that, you know, I, I was, you know, I, I was postpartum, you know, six or I guess, uh, a, yeah, uh, a, a y- six months after having my son, um, started, you know, getting back into, into my physical fitness. And, uh, this was in the beginning of 2018. And then, you know, I am very disciplined. I commit to something, and I and I follow through. And halfway through the year, I thought, "Wow, I'm getting my physique back to this point where I was, you know, years before." And I had actually considered competing um, as a bikini competitor. So there's different divisions in bodybuilding. There's classic bodybuilding, which is what most people think about. But, for, um, but there's there's other other divisions that are not as um, uh, muscular or as as developed or as as lean for example uh, it's a, it's a, it's an awesome world to to you know to learn about but um, I decided you know what I'm gonna brush up this old goal that I had about competing and I'm gonna reframe it to I'm gonna compete at 40 so I started my first competition prep and I did my first uh, my first show in November of 2018 And in the process of prepping for my first competition, I was befriending on social media, but also at the gym, a lot of fellow female competitors. And when you think of bodybuilders, when you think about people in fitness, we tend to very narrowly label them as superficial, as people who are narcissistic, as people who spend way too much time looking in the mirror and looking at their bodies and, you know, worrying about how, you know, how the, how they look, which we, again, we... It's we,
0: the judge, again.
1: Oh, <laughs> a judge of others, uh-huh. absolutely. Uh-huh. Um, and so we have this, this stereotype, well-known, and meatheads, and, you know, so, and the other part of that, too, is that people who, you know, who focus a lot on their bodies must not be very smart, okay? Um, and so in the process of, prepping for competition. I was learning a lot about myself and, and I was also getting to meet a lot of other women. And what was super fascinating to me was a lot of these women were engineers, were physicians, were military members, were women with kids, women overcoming, you know, any number of things, women who've had severe diseases and have overcome them or Illnesses or any number of things. It was so broad, the backgrounds that they had. And I, I had amazing conversations, probably more free and conversations about life in general than I ever did in academia. So that wow. was a really interesting part for me. It was like, wow, I can have like super intense, deep conversations with them. And I can have intellectual conversations like I would with academics. Okay, this is totally messing me up because this is not something that I, I expected. Um, and so, and the more that I kind of dug into people's stories, because as an anthropologist, ethnography is just simply what I do. It's not, I didn't become you know, an ethnographer because of anthropology. I was already one and it was just like a good fit with anthropology. Um, and so I would just did my thing of just being curious about people and being curious about what got them there. What, what compels you to be in a teeny, you know, a teeny bikini on stage in front of a bunch of randos, getting judged because let's face it nobody wants to get judged for their body okay that is not something that you actively seek okay and yet this is exactly what all of these competitors are doing and what's 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 more they find the stage empowering and now I thought okay this is not this is such a paradox what could possibly be empowering about Again, being up there in like these micro micro suits, getting judged by a whole bunch of like random people, and what it really is is that in the process of preparing for a competition, uh, which can take you know years, you learn to let go of other people's expectations of who you should be, what you should look like, and especially because for women. We are not taught that being muscular is feminine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Quite the opposite. looking soft, looking you know our, our perception of femininity in our society is is very different than what you would see on a bodybuilding stage. And yet these women embrace femininity because they get to claim their own definition of what femininity is mm, mm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I find that to be very compelling and powerful
0: like hmm, what is the question why is that important in your mind and what does it propel you to do in your life when you're able to stand on a stage in that way letting go of larger expectations
1: Probably the biggest thing is that because you can let go what people think about your body, which is something that we all have a lot of uh, uh, a whole lot of judgment of others about and and judgment of self about, too, is that when you when you're in that process of, of, of kind of like freeing yourself from social expectations about this part of your life, you get to do the same thing for all other parts of your life. That's really what it comes down to, Mm Danielle, is, mm -hmm, like, to me, like, I have, I have, I've been saying these things, like, you know, it's not Buddhism, it's not the way to enlightenment, it's bodybuilding.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love
1: it. And so, as I, as I was, I was, I was seeing this pattern, kind of with all of the different, you know, women that I was speaking to, I thought, this is a side, this is a side of bodybuilding that nobody has seen before. OK, when you look at mainstream uh, uh, documentaries about bodybuilding, which are all about men, um, you they focus on three things, they, how they eat, they focus on their training and on whatever the competition is, whether it's a bodybuilding, whether it's strength, you know, some strength sports, whatever. They don't really get at the human of like. So I feel like it, it also contributes to this like sense of like uh, these people are all about like their body. Right. Uh, and I wanted to, I wanted to give a different picture. And I just had this like really brilliant, expansive idea of, you know, what would be really cool to have a very different side of this story, to show the paradox of, of this context of this, you know, these people in this, in this microculture, uh, niche kind of, you know, setting um, and to really show people what is possible for them. Because to me, there's so many lessons that people talk about in bodybuilding that apply to your personal growth that everybody where everybody should be in terms of letting go, letting go of mm-hmm. others' expectations and doing you and being authentic to who you are for yourself. Nobody is making you go train. Nobody all of these people do it, especially women, they, they don't have sponsors that pay them to do this all the time. Very few do. Most of them do it for themselves. And and so it's that journey to through self-discovery to self-actualization is just so so fascinating to me in this context where you would not think it would happen
0: that is so interesting and you know what that is the same sort of journey I would describe um for entrepreneurship, right? Like oh my gosh, the entrepreneurial yes, path, yes, right? Self discovery and self actualization and self discipline—it's all the stuff.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And so, like when I, when I when I had this idea, I just basically thought, you know what? I've never done a film. I don't know the first thing about filmmaking, but you know what I do know about myself? I know that I can find somebody who would want to do this with me. And so that's basically what I set out to do. I I set out. uh, So here in Cincinnati, there's a women in film uh, Cincinnati organization. And I went to their first networking event, which was like two weeks after I had that bright idea. And I found this wonderful uh, uh, filmmaker, uh, Olga Wagner, who partnered with me. And we talked all things gender. And she's from Moldova, so Eastern European. And she's an, an immigrant here. And we've just connected very, very passionately um, from the beginning, and we've been working on this for, my gosh, November 2018 was our first um, when we started filming, basically for my show. And by the way, I got first place Masters uh, bikini, <laughs> which is like, oh my yeah, God. congratulations! Yes. Wow. And it was Like it was one of those things of like, okay, as for the film, that's pretty awesome, and we couldn't have planned it, yeah. right? Like that just right. it just happened. Um, mm-hmm. And everything else about this film has been like that, and and so we mm-hmm. were just in, uh, we were just in Orlando uh, for the Olympia in December. Um, Olympia is basically the Super Bowl of bodybuilding, and what what if, what I realized, Danielle, that was a big epiphany in terms of integration, is that when I reflect back on the things that have made me feel happy and where I feel completely alive. They're the things that allow me to be all parts of me. And so, for example, for the film, I get to be Margie, the the host, the talent. I get to be Margie, the researcher, doing the interviews. I get to be Margie, the organizer, Margie, the traveler, Margie. Like, I get to be all parts of me in one place. Mmm,
0: so good and it just made me
1: realize like wow I feel integrated I feel all parts of me belong they all belong and that sense of like just expansiveness as a person was just so clear and it made me realize like wow this is also why I felt very unintegrated in other areas of my life and and in some very disintegrated. Like that there was just simply parts of me that were dying. That there were parts of me mm-hmm. that were that were just withering away that were just as important for me to 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 blossom. Wow.
0: Okay, so I know we've run out of time. Oh I gosh, need to yeah. <laughs> Ask you. I, I want to ask you about your six-week coaching program, yes. um, but I also want to ask you if there's anything you would leave folks with who um, are sort of wanting to continue chewing on these ideas that that you're bringing up about integrating yourself and paying attention to those pieces of yourself that you've abandoned out of worry um Mm -hmm. that that the larger culture will will not see it as okay or appropriate
1: yeah um so the biggest thing that I would I would leave behind for your listeners would be if you're feeling stuck if you're feeling like you are unintegrated or disintegrated if you're feeling that sense of being limited where you are in whatever you're doing or in your relationship The first thing that I would say is just take take some time, take five minutes, just calm your brain, do some breathing exercises, do some meditation, listen to song, you know, like music, like nature tunes, anything to kind of get yourself out of thinking space, thinking with your head, and then once you've, you know, once you feel more relaxed, and you don't have all of that, just that junk swimming in your head, all those thoughts, all those fears, all of that, you know, uh, mind chatter, ask yourself the question, what am I missing to feel whole? Yeah, because that really, that's, that's really a good first question to ask. And, and it'll allow you to see either the things that you haven't gone after because of fear or the things that you've neglected because of fear. And if you want to dig a little bit more into this, you could do it on a one-on-one basis with, with me or with a coach that you feel you're aligned with. Um, coaching is such a powerful tool it's very intimate, judgment-free, safe space for you to explore the things that are troubling you and very different than therapy because you're not looking at the root cause of where this started. We're, we're starting from where are you right now and where do you want to go? Where do you want to be? Who are you being? And who do you want to become? And having a coach will give you a trustworthy person to be able to navigate that terrain because these are not questions that we ask ourselves. And then, if one on one seems too scary and you're like, you know, I don't know that I want to commit to this yet, and you know, then the alternative would be to do a group coaching um, program. I have a six week uh, positive intelligence based uh, group coaching program where, where we, we we dabble a little bit in all these different areas of the judge and the sage and you know the different things that um, that affect the way that we that we think and the way that we behave to free ourselves from a lot of those fears to be able to move forward in our lives.
0: Cool and your um, your program is for you said, people in transition within academia.
1: Correct? My Yes so my, students, my faculty my, Yes so it's so it's basically uh, yes yeah, students, teachers, so educators in, so not just in the higher ed space but um, but yes also academic and researchers or so postdocs. Um, whether you're in academia and you're exploring these things or you're transitioning out of academia or you're out of academia, uh, that's definitely a, a lot of the space in which I work um, with different organizations. So yeah. And, and individually as well.
0: (laughs) Okay. So how can we reach you?
1: You can reach me. So I'm on LinkedIn. A lot of uh, academics may or may not be, um, but I can be reached on LinkedIn or you can reach me through my website at human-empowered.com
0: amazing margie thank you so much for Absolutely. being a repeat guest yes. i love having this fuller conversation about you
1: agreed yeah so now it's more more than a sliver now it's more like okay like everything fits
0: <laughs> uh, and actually as i feel in my body the way this conversation went i can feel the expansiveness Mm -hmm. um, that you talk about with integrating all of your roles. Yes. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. They all belong. That's the biggest thing is just recognizing all parts of us belong. And if anybody has told you otherwise, they're not you. And you get to choose for yourself. You get to choose. Yes. Margie,
0: thank you so much.
1: You are very welcome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was such a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Self-Compassionate Professor. Find me on LinkedIn at Danielle Delamar, on Twitter and Instagram at Danielle S.C. Prof, or schedule a free coaching consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Be well.